Back chat. Back chat. Back chat. Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Back chat. Back chat. Your alternative to talk back. to Back Chat on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swatha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. Ah, this week has seen a tragic stabbing in Sydney CBD, Trump literally trying to buy Greenland, and a giant fish tube capture the hearts and minds of young Aussies everywhere. But, as always, we're going to be giving you the news that you might not have heard on your airwaves this week. First up, we have Richie Merzian, director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute speaking to us about our government's unwillingness for stronger action on climate change in the wake of this year's Pacific Islands Forum. After that, we'll be speaking to Desiree Kai, Australia-wide president for the National University, sorry, National Union of Students about uh, performance measures that will decide funding increases for universities in 2020. And as always, we want to hear from you. What do you think should decide how much funding universities get? Or what should decide how much money students have in their trust funds? Or what should, <laughs> what should decide maybe the quality of the HSPs on campus? Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Well, who's surprised? Scott Morrison has made his opposition to other Pacific Island nations' views on climate change known. After distancing himself from language, calling for urgent action on the climate crisis. When the forum called for an immediate global ban on the construction of new coal-fired power plants, only one country opted out of supporting the statement. When asked after the session if the qualification had come from a country starting with the letter A, the Tuvaluan Prime Minister reportedly laughed and said, Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, to remind everyone, uh, just in case they don't remember their alphabet and they don't remember how to spell Australia, Australia is the only nation in the group of 18 beginning with the letter A. Today we have Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, Richie Merzian, speaking to us about what this all means for Australia's climate change policy. Hi there, Richie. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So, can you give us a little bit of background into what the Pacific Islands Forum is? Sure. So, the Pacific Islands Forum has been going on for quite a while. It is the main way that all the Pacific Islands, that's the 16 or so small island developing states like Fiji, Tuvalu, Kiribati, uh, meet with annually New Zealanders in Australia and discuss issues of importance to the region and see if they can come to a shared agreement on how to take those issues forward. So it's a pretty important diplomatic event for our corner of the world and one that the Pacific and usually Australia takes quite seriously. So climate has been featured heavily in talks at the forum, obviously, um, but just how significant an issue is climate change in the region? It is of paramount importance. Last year at the Pacific Island Forum, in, uh, which changes location each year, last year it was in Nauru, and all the leaders agreed that the single greatest concern for the region was climate change, and their top priority was trying to bring about more global action to address rising greenhouse gas emissions. So it's pretty much the number one issue for the region, and it was likely that this Pacific Island Forum, which was taking place in Tuvalu, 
would make it even bigger bigger of an issue because Tuvalu is pretty much on the front lines of climate impact. It's a small country, only 11,000 people, and it's made up of coral atolls. So the highest level on the main island is maybe two or three meters above sea level. So they're right on the front lines of climate impacts, and they wanted to have as strong a declaration as possible from the region. So what climate policy changes have we seen from being involved in the forum, if any? Um, so Australia uh, has been quite active in terms of ensuring that a lot of support, so that's um, foreign aid, flows to the Pacific to help them deal with some of the unavoidable impacts. And that includes Australia playing a role multilaterally on some of the UN funds, as well as domestically in giving bilateral or direct aid. Um, Australia has often consulted the Pacific um, at the UN in terms of how strong the goal should be. And that goal that the Pacific has been pushing is to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. That's a very ambitious goal. I think, Australia, I think the, kind, the world is already at 1.1 degrees, and so that's why everyone's talking about the critical decade. This next decade is really when we need to turn things around. Otherwise, we'll push past that 1.5, and that's where you really start to have some of these tipping points and these, some, some serious extreme weather events that become the, the norm. So Australia has interacted in many ways, but often it's fallen short. Never, though, has it fallen as short as the most recent Pacific Forum. So has pressure from other Pacific Island governments made a difference to how Australia sets its climate policy? It, it has. It has in the past, but unfortunately, there's a strong vested interest that are at play. I'm based in Canberra, and the, you know, the mining, but in particular the coal, um, gas, industry have been intimately involved in setting Australia's climate change policies for the last 20 years. Um, a, a previous uh, person at the Australian Institute basically wrote a book about the greenhouse mafia that controlled Australia's climate change policies um, over the John Howard era. And so oftentimes Australia's just fallen short, and that's why we weren't, weren't part of the Kyoto Protocol as well. So how has the forum impacted the relationship between Australia and Pacific Island nations? Um, so where to from here? I'm imagining the relationship isn't great. No, the, the relationship's in a really bad state. So <laughs> the, Prime Minister Morrison last year when he was getting pressured to pull out of the Paris Agreement said, no, we need to stay in this because it's important to our partners in the Pacific. And then he led this program, which is called Pacific Step Up, to re-engage the Pacific, demonstrate that we're the partner of choice, and that Australia is really their long-term friend and family member. But that all backfired because Australia has such crap climate change policies. And so the Pacific were asking for things that are well within Australia's means to deliver. Don't expand more coal mines. Don't build new coal-fired power stations. Don't use dodgy carbon credits to water down your task. Research by the Australian Institute shows that Australia has enough dodgy carbon credits, so credits that is decreed from the previous climate change agreement that don't really represent emission reductions, it has so many credits that it's equal to eight years' worth of all the Pacific Islands' fossil fuel emissions put together, including New Zealand. So Australia was trying to gain the system. Australia is trying to expand its coal exports. Coal is the largest single source of greenhouse gas emissions globally. Um, and so Australia was just not listening and not trying to meet anywhere close to halfway to demonstrate that it was trying to be a serious partner.
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with the Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, Richie Merzin, about the Pacific Islands Forum and Australia's lacklustre stance on the climate crisis. Now, Richie, here is my question. Why does the Australian government love coal so damn much? Uh, it's and it's not just the Australian government, it's the Prime Minister. Like, let's remember, he brought a lump of coal into Parliament and waved it around, and now it looks like his fixation <laughs> with coal is coming ahead of specific survival. Yep. Uh, the, the, the coal industry have been incredibly successful at like selling the narrative that coal is essential for Australia's economy, it's essential for jobs, but it's not. And so research the Australian Institute has been doing is showing that in Queensland, which is probably, you know, has a reputation for being the most coal-reliant and coal-heavy state, it, coal only, only, like, coal jobs are about 1% of the workforce in Queensland. And in terms of revenue, coal doesn't play a huge part in Australia's revenue sources. I think, you know, the country makes, Queensland government alone makes more money from car regos than it does from coal royalties. So it, but the narrative has been so well embedded over decades that it has permeated how some politicians take it forward. And that's coming at the serious expense of our diplomacy and our relationships. And it will have national security consequences. So part of the reason why the Prime Minister was so keen to step up in the Pacific is because China's looking to step up as well. And if you want to be the partner of choice, then you need to listen and act on what the, part, on what the region cares about. So it, it has national security implications, not just, you know, um, not just in terms of the climate. So if we continue down this path of coal-powered energy, um, obviously there are economic ramifications, but what environmental effects could we expect to see? So Australia's emissions are increasing. They have been for the last five years, ever since the current federal government got rid of the carbon price, which was working and reducing our emissions. Right now, there's no credible policy to turn our emissions southwards. And so that means we're continuing to see, you know, um, rising emissions in every sector of our economy, except for electricity, because renewables are coming online, because they're cheaper. So it doesn't put Australia in a great place in terms of its rising emissions. Australia is not on track to hit its 26% emission reduction target by 2030. Um, and also, there's consequences. Like, um, climate change is exacerbating globally, and that means more extreme weather events, more extreme heat. We just had a, you know, a record summer in terms of heat. You have these oddities like bushfires in winter um, last year with droughts, floods, the whole shebang. Like You'll see an increase in the frequency and severity of these weather events, and Australia's not even trying to address it. And the other thing to just note is that often people will write it off and say, well, Australia can't do everything. You know, we're only one, one and a bit percent of global emissions. But Australia has a huge role in terms of exporting emissions overseas. So Australia ships off twice as much pollution carbon pollution through its fossil fuels that it's responsible for domestically. And we have a new report coming out in two days that shows that Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels um, in terms of emissions. And so really there's, a, there's an imperative on Australia to do what it can domestically, but also in terms of how it ships its pollution overseas as well. And I think that's really what the government needs to come to grips with in the aftermath of this diplomatic car crash that was the Pacific Island Forum. So, Richie, I'd love to deep dive into what exactly the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute 
does to help the progress um, against the fight against climate crisis? So, um, right now, so the Pacific Island Forum was important for the region, but in one month, the UN Secretary General will host the Global Climate Summit. Uh, it's the one that um, Greta Thunberg is, is taking a boat to get to. Um, it's uh, set at leaders' level, so almost every global leader will be looking to attend this summit on the 23rd of September, and that's really with the sole point of raising ambition. But it's not just for leaders and for those who play a, a role in the global stage, it's for everyone as well. And I think there's a climate strike being organized on the 20th of September that I think everyone should get involved with. I think this is the point where you look at every single angle that you can take. Like if you can take to the streets, if you can demonstrate, if you can strike, um, if you can get active in terms of doing research and pushing policy. Um, yeah, and, and having these conversations with everyone, things are only going to get worse uh, unless we do something about it. And so we're acting at the international space. We're looking at what we can do domestically at the, at, at the Australian Institute. Um, but everyone has the tools in their hands to um, make, make a change. Before we let you go, Richie, what can we do, just the general Australian public do, to ensure that the government has its priorities in check when it comes to the environment? Mm. Uh, well, look, I mean, the, the first thing you can do is always engage in your politics. Um, you know, like, I, like the coalition government took a policy to the, the election that was really quite weak in terms of what it was going to do for climate change. Um, but they weren't scrutinized. It wasn't really scrutinized. It wasn't really put side to side and, and seen as, as a poor effort. Um, so, I mean, getting active at the federal level, at the state level, at the city level. Um, the New South Wales government has a net zero emissions by 2050 target but it's not necessarily on track to hit that target. And so what it needs is an interim target. And that's being discussed at the Victorian level, but it's not at the New South Wales level. So I was talking to your New South Wales poly about what the state is doing to make sure that it can meet that target in 2050, because you want to see what the goal will look like in 2030. New South Wales doesn't have a renewable energy target. So it has one of the most coal-fired power-reliant grids um, in, this, in the country. Thank you so, so much. Oh, sorry, apologies. No, continue. No, no, that's, that's look, and, and at the local level as well. But having said that, the city of Sydney uh, is, is kicking some serious goals and declared a climate emergency. But it's really what does that climate emergency mean in terms of actions? Oh, and sorry, one last thing, divest. Yeah, oh, okay. Look at, look, at, look at who you're banking with, look at who you're super, who you're super's with, and make sure that, that, that your money is going to a, a clean and green direction. Honestly, Richie, we could talk to you all day. This has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you so much for being out with us. My pleasure. That was Richie Merzian, Director of the Climate and Energy Program at the Australia Institute, discussing how our government's watering down of the Pacific Islands Forum suggests um, suggestion to ban coal power energy. Not great. Stay tuned because we'll be moving along to our next interview with Desiree Kai. NUS National President discussing the new merit-based university funding to take place in 2020. Uh, but we're going to go to a song right now. Here's my favorite song of the moment, Dead to Me by Carly Uchis. Back chat. Text 0409-945-945. Do you know how government funding is decided for Australia's tertiary institutions? Well, as of 2020, universities will have to demonstrate success across four new performance measures to unlock funding increases. Under the funding scheme, unis will be measured for how well they perform in graduate employment outcomes like student success, student experience and enrolment of Indigenous 
disadvantaged and rural students. Desiree Kai, Australia-wide president for the National Union of Students, is speaking to us about the changes this morning. Hey there, Desiree. Hey. So can you, I guess, first up, give us a quick overview of these new changes? Yeah, so um, basically, I, I give a bit of context because this comes kind of from some funding cuts that happened in 2017. So in 2017, they froze university um, funding levels. So that meant that essentially university places were capped. And that was a $2.2 billion funding freeze um, that happened uh, from 2018 until now. Um, And they're essentially lifting the funding freeze and this performance-based measure um, that's been announced is yeah, the lift of the funding freeze and they're introducing um, what, I mean, you could look at cynically as a very small amount for university sector in general, which is $80 million in total um, per year. Um, yeah, and so those are based on those measures that were just outlined. So uh, first-year attrition, the participation rates of students from equity groups, um, graduate employment rates, and also student satisfaction with teaching. So what do these performance measures actually really mean? Yeah, well, on the one hand, you can look at them um, quite positively because they are all about student success, um, which I think is something that universities haven't really had much of a, uh, you know, laser focus on. Mm. Um, in sort of recent years, you can see students, like, sort of getting left behind um, by the lack of services. And, of course, that's also a result of the lack of funding that you, uh, security that universities have. Um, but, no, on, on the one hand, it is really fantastic to see... Um, yeah, the performance measures are all based on students succeeding at university. Um, it's just a matter of whether the performance-based funding scheme will actually deliver on improving those outcomes for students. And um, if you look at it cynically, $80 million isn't much money. Universities ultimately do need funding to run programs to, say, help um, people from disadvantaged groups succeed at university. Um, and so, you know, it's good in principle... Um, and we'll need to see how it plays out in practice. So do you think that the system will make funding, make this process, I guess, um, fairer across all Australian universities? I know there's a focus on students, but do you think the outcomes will be, I guess, like, you know, measurable in the future? Yeah. Um, I guess, like, across universities, they all do have very different needs. Like, the Charles Darwin University up in rural Northern Territory will have very different needs than the University of Sydney, for example. Um, you know, like, they're very different sort of environments. Um, and so it, it is interesting the way that the government has done the performance measures as, like, being the same for every single university because different unions are going to have different sort of strengths because of just how they are. Can we expect um, rural tertiary institutions to benefit from the scheme too? Um, yes, they should benefit from the scheme as much as, you know, your GO8 inner city campuses um, do. But that's also a matter of just seeing how it plays out um, because you might find that it could become really un- inequitable because they can't, you know, they might not have as much funding to pour into resources for students, um, you know, from other means. So, yeah, just in general, like, the state of university funding isn't very conducive to improving um, student services on campus. Um, and so that all needs to be seen how it plays out. 
You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. Desiree Kai, Australia-wide President for the National Union of Students, is speaking to us about the changes to government funding for Australian universities. Now, Desiree, we've got some text in. We're asking people what they think should determine what um, funding universities get. Um, Peyton from Redfern, she says, I reckon uni should be funded according to how many babes are on campus, as if I need more incentive. Um, okay, great suggestion. We'll. Um, how, how do you feel about that, Desiree? Should we add that to the book? Yeah, like performance, uh, I guess, so, sorry, funding is already really based on how many bums they can get on seats for universities. Oh, um, and maybe so, there should be better bums. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> there's that, but um, I guess the amount of funding per student at campus um you could say that like the support services are currently failing and there's not enough support on campus for the actual number of people who are at university. But definitely funding is tied to the amount of people there. Mm, okay. Well, we got another text from Kyle from Camperdown and they said, I don't trust this game. I don't trust this government. Which is interesting because I, you know, it's, you hear changes like this and sometimes you want to feel a bit cynical you know? Um, and I think yeah. where I'm a bit cynical about it is I wonder how do we actually measure this? Like, how do we actually measure these performance metrics that they've set? Yeah, yeah. And they do have an expert panel of, you know, university vice chancellors and experts looking at um, who made a report about, you know, how they're going to measure all these things. But specifically, we still don't know. Um, you know, the paper that was released doesn't really have you know, the in-depth details of how that's going to be measured. Um, so that will be interesting to see. So apart from those metrics just being difficult to measure, I guess, uh, what other challenges uh, would there be for a funding scheme like this? Um, well, I guess it's a matter of, like, this is a complete, I guess, turnaround in the way that universities have been um, sort of seen in Australia for the past 40 years, uh, like, in terms of... Um, not really growing places and, you know, not being an emphasis on that. Um, so, uh, yeah, the scheme is, um, it's, it, it'll, it'll be really interesting to see if universities actually do have the capacity to provide better services for students and deliver on those sort of performance-based metrics. Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, to round off, Desiree, is there anything that people should be looking out for in the coming future? Anything we should be doing to kind of um, lobby the government to keep students at, um, you know, their priority? Yeah. Yeah, well, currently we're seeing that students aren't and young people generally also don't seem to be. Um, And so it's just maintaining that pressure, um, making sure that uh, if you're politically active or, you know, writing to your minister, um, talking about education is a really important issue because currently it's not an issue that uh, you know gets taken to elections or that it seems the general public will vote on. Um, and so it's really important that we improve the standing or I guess the, the uh, importance of higher education to everyday Australia. Well, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, Desiree. No worries. That was Desiree Kai, Australia-wide president for the National Union of Students, discussing the changes to government funding for Australia's university.
Well, and that's all we've got time for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Eden Faithful, Natalie Sekolovska, and Pip Leeson. And thanks again to our guests, Richie Merzian and Desiree Kai. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a track by Khalid. It's it, called... It's Kai Eat, apparently. Oh, I don't know. Look, um, she is an absolute babe. Um, I think she was a Triple J on Earth finalist. Um, I'm a big fan of hers. I saw her before. Um, she opened for Smino in Ooh, Sydney um, I, a couple of months ago. I love Smino. I love Smino. So so we're going to play Natural Woman, my favorite song by Kate, and we'll see you on the other end of the fish tube. Bye.